The proclamation of God's word can be found on page six of your worship folder. Our sermon text reading today comes from John 19, 1 through 16. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, it was good to be back from vacation. Uh, my family, we had a wonderful time in Florida these past couple of weeks, and so as you all were up here freezing without a boiler, we just had to turn our air conditioner on. So I can't say that we were envious of what you guys were going through. Thankful today and to the Redeemer staff for filling in, in what seemed to be a very unusual week, but we are, we are thankful to be back. We made the drive to Orlando, and you can imagine that uh, with five kids in a minivan, driving to Orlando is a very long trip. Lots of driving. The one good thing is that this means lots of time for dad to listen to some podcasts. And so my, my range was somewhat vast like it usually is. I listened to some podcasts on sports, certainly a number of theology podcasts. I spent probably the bulk of the time listening to a podcast on the Elizabeth Holmes Theranos trial. It's very interesting. But the one podcast that was perhaps the most interesting to me, the most thought-provoking, was an interview with Wilfred McClay, who was a professor at Hillsdale College. And Dr. McClay wrote an article five years ago for the Hedgehog Review titled, The Strange Persistence 
of guilt. And here, here's the main idea of the article. He's, he's looking at Nietzsche, who Nietzsche, in his well-known work titled On the Genealogy of Morality, Nietzsche argued that we have guilt because we believe in God. And we, of course, as a church would say, well, Nietzsche is right. If there is a God, that means there is a standard, and we break that standard, therefore we all have a sense of indebtedness or guilt. But Nietzsche's argument would go on to say that as soon as the culture can move away from God, that means we would all be freed from a sense of guilt. Or as Nietzsche would say, as soon as God is dead, then guilt would be dead as well. No God no guilt. And so atheism, in Nietzsche's mind, is the promise of a second innocence. You get a a second chance when we are finally set free from all these man-made constructs like God, sin, Satan, fallenness. We can move past it all, and you can be free again. You can be innocent. No God, no guilt. I guess on one level, that sounds sort of good, But our present secular age is showing us that's just not how it works. In in, in big ways and in small ways, even though we are moving beyond God, we all still feel guilty. We all feel guilty for all the things that the culture wants us to be, and yet we are not. We are guilty for not eating plant-based foods. We are guilty for our carbon footprint. We are guilty for not being on the right side of progressive history. You see, 20 years ago, the concern was that the religious right are making people feel guilty. We are now learning that the anti-religious right are making us feel just as guilty. We, we, We are shamed in every way. The secular world tells us there is no such thing as guilt because that is man made, and yet they are preaching a message of guilt. And of course, those are some smaller issues about carbon footprints and eating plant-based. But then there's much more serious issues. If there is no such thing as guilt because God is dead, then what do we say then about Putin and what he is doing in the Ukraine? Should there not be a guilty sentence when this is all said and done and we look at all the lives that he has killed and all the cities that he has blown up? Should there not be a trial? Should there not be a punishment? Should not Putin be sentenced as guilty? I think only the the most foolish atheist would say that Putin should be set free because guilt is a man-made construct. So there, there's always, you know, very impressive academics that are, that are, you know, lofty language, and they have PhDs, and they have degrees, and they can quote French philosophers that say, oh, God is dead, and therefore there is no guilt. And yet any person with an ounce of common sense knows that you cannot just explain guilt away. The strange thing According to this Hedgehog Review article, the strange thing is that even though culture is moving beyond God, guilt still persists. You you can't just remove it. You can't just wish it away. You can't just turn to alcohol and just drink it away. There has to be something rooted in history, in action, a moment that actually deals with our guilt because it still persists. 
So that's going to be the theme of this sermon, and really is going to be the theme as we are now entering into the final couple chapters of the gospel according to John. What do we do with our guilt? This is the first Sunday in Lent. Lent is the 40 days leading up to Easter Sunday. We're not going to do too much for Lent this year, again, because the just all the sermons are going to be about Good Friday and Easter, and so we didn't feel like we needed to do too much extra in the service because these are all really going to be Lent messages. But we are now entering the final couple of chapters of the gospel according to John. We started this gospel account the summer of 2020, and really everything up to this point has just been the prelude just sort of the, the, the introduction. We are, we are now at the crescendo, we are now at the peak. Jesus is going to die. And our hope for you this upcoming Lent season is that everything that we are going to talk about these next six weeks in these services, that you would come to understand the gospel of grace in a new way in a fresh way, in a renewed way, and perhaps some of you that do not know the Lord, that you would come to know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, perhaps even for the very first time. We are all guilty. You can't just explain it away through academics. You can't just explain it away through philosophy. And as we're going to see also, for the religious people, You cannot just burn off your guilt through your own religious act or sacrifice. You need something outside of you to do it. And that is going to be our theme for these final couple weeks. At this point in John's gospel account, Jesus has now been betrayed by Judas. He has been arrested, and as we saw a few weeks ago, Jesus has been sent to the high priest, and now he is before Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate was the Roman governor And as you you look at this story carefully, Pontius Pilate, he's really just a pawn in this story. Pilate looks at Jesus. He he sees no ultimate guilt in him. You know, the Jewish people are very concerned about blasphemy and what Jesus has been saying, but Pilate's not a Jew. He does not care about them. He just wants peace and order in his city. And so Pilate is going to have Jesus flogged, and this is just a way of him trying to appease the crowds. It's his, it's his way of saying, okay, I know you don't like Jesus. You can see I flogged, I did something. Now, can we all just go home? Just, just live in peace, I did something. But for this angry crowd, that is not enough. And so the crowd is going to paint Pilate into a corner, and they say, you either kill Jesus, or we are going to tell Caesar that there is another king, and you are going to lose your job. Pilate is a coward. He listens to the crowd. Jesus is going to be handed over to them to be crucified. Jesus is going to make the ultimate sacrifice in his devotion to God. Now, in this story here in John 19, what what often happens, and this is what often happens also during Lent, is that we make this story of how we should follow the example of Jesus, that we should be like Jesus in his suffering, and for 40 days during Lent that we should suffer a little bit like Jesus. So make some kind of sacrifice in your life. Give something up. Give up me, give up chocolate, 
make your life a little bit harder, make your life a little bit more sacrificial so that you might be more like Jesus. And the reason that many people do this is they want to personally atone for their sin. This is a way of sort of buying off God. They, they, they know that they are guilty. The strange thing is that guilt persists. And so Lent becomes a time of burning off our own sin. But as you see, and I hope you'll see in this sermon, if that is your understanding, not just of Lent, not just of John 19, but of the actual gospel, if that is your understanding of what Jesus has come to do, simply to give you an example for how to suffer for your own sin, I want you to see that's a moralistic, man-centered, Christless, and not a gracious way of understanding what Jesus is doing here in John 19. So I have three words from the text before us that show us a better way to understand what Jesus is doing here on Good Friday. The three words that are before us this morning are flogged, see that in verse one, thorns, you see that in verse five, Passover in verse 14. Three words, flogged, thorns, Passover, These three words, when you put them together, will find the hope for our guilty souls. And this hope is not found in us or through religious piety, but is found in what Jesus has done. Word number one says that Jesus was flogged. Now, the word flogged, that's that's not a word that we would likely use today. Perhaps the, the word that we would have in our minds when we hear it is that Jesus was whipped, and that, that, that's close. But flogging is a step beyond even just being whipped. It was a whip, but inside the lashes of the whip was laced with, with very sharp objects, so stone or pieces of bone or perhaps even some sharp pieces of brass. It was all laced in the whip, and so the soldier would get the whip, crack it on the guilty person's back, and there would be the first just, you know, smack of the leather, but then what would happen is the sharp pieces were then embedded in the flesh of the back. So once that happened, then the soldier, after whipping, would then pull down so as to actually tear the flesh. This was an excruciating punishment that was saved for the vilest of offender. This was the type of punishment that was only given to guilty people. Perhaps this is stating the obvious, but sometimes the obvious needs to be stated. It's important to notice here that Jesus is now seen as being guilty. He, of course, isn't. All he's done is love and follow the Lord and to be faithful to him. But Jesus now is being seen as a lawbreaker, as guilty, as owing a debt. Jesus, though innocent, is being tried as though he is guilty. Guilt needs to be atoned for. Payment needs to be paid. It is unjust just for guilty to go free without punishment. So Jesus is being tried here, and the punishment is that he is being flogged. What's interesting, though, is Isaiah, who is an Old Testament prophet, Isaiah writes in chapter 53 of his book, there's this this very beautiful chapter that is the chapter of the suffering servant. It's really looking forward to Jesus and how he will suffer. And Isaiah says 
that by the wounds of the suffering servant, we are healed. This is a verse that Peter will also quote in his first letter. The King James Version translates Isaiah 53 by saying, by his stripes, we are healed. So there's going to be a number of ways that Jesus is, is beaten up here on Good Friday, but the King James Version understands it, that it's the stripes that are the healing, that as Jesus was whipped, as he was flogged, you don't need to go into to too much detail because it's, it's very graphic, but I think you get the sense that as he was whipped, there were stripes of blood on his back. And Isaiah and then Peter both will say, those stripes, Jesus paying the sentence of guilt, those bloody stripes are the means by which we will be healed, by which we will be forgiven. Come back to to that more in a minute. The second word that I want you to notice is the use of the word thorns, that Jesus wore a crown of thorns. And this crown of thorns, this is, of course, a way for the soldiers to mock Jesus, saying, Jesus, you claim to be king, you claim to be royalty. Okay, King Jesus, we're going to give you a fake robe. It's going to be purple. We're going to give you a fake crown. It's not going to be a gold crown. There's not going to be any jewels. We're going to give you a crown of thorns. And so this is a way of the soldiers mocking Jesus. I've never been to Jerusalem, but I read this past week that because the area is so dry, there's just all sorts of thorny, spiky plants all over the place. And so these soldiers likely just on the side of the road picked up some thorns, crafted a crown, and just jammed it onto the head of Jesus. They're mocking him. They're saying, oh, king, here's your dirty, thorny crown. They're laughing at him. This is also another way just to make Jesus hurt more. There's no requirement in the law that guilty offenders would have to wear a crown of thorns. And so this is just another way of the soldiers going above and beyond to make Jesus hurt. But beyond the mocking and beyond the physical pain, again, there is something deeper going on here with thorns. The very first mention of thorns in the Bible is Genesis chapter three. That as soon as Adam and Eve ate the fruit of the tree, as soon as sin entered into the world, there is a curse that is laid upon the world. And one aspect of the curse is that the land will now be full of thorns and thistles. So thorns are a sign of the curse. You know, before sin, before the curse, everything in the world was pleasant and comfortable and easy, and now life in the land itself, it's full of thorns, and thorns poke you, and thorns stretch you, and thorns cause bleeding and cause pain. Thorns represent the curse, the pain of this world. And so, what is happening here as Jesus is getting ready to be crucified? Thorns are going to be placed on his head. This is a way of saying the curse itself 
is now going to be placed upon Jesus. As Jesus is going to head to the cross, Jesus is going to the cross wearing the curse. I was at one of the very first Together for the Gospel conferences. I I think it was 14 years ago. And at this conference, R.C. Sproul was preaching. The, uh, The title for his sermon was The Curse Motif of the Atonement. And I, I recognize that even as a, a preaching pastor, most of you are not going to remember most sermons that you hear at Redeemer or whatever church you end up. Most sermons, you're helped for the week, but then the next week you hear something different. But every now and then, there is a sermon that you remember for the rest of your life. And this sermon by R.C. Sproul was one of those sermons for me. And what R.C. Sproul did is he began the sermon by quoting from Numbers chapter 6. This is the ironic blessing. This is the blessing that we often give at the end of the service here at Redeemer. It's a blessing. You know, the pastor raises his hand, says, the Lord bless you and the Lord keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. It's, it's a blessing. It's about knowing God and being with God and God drawing close to you. It's about God giving us his peace. This is the great blessing of God. Now think of the curse as the opposite of all of that. About God being distant, about God being dark. Not blessing, but God actually cursing. Jesus put that curse. He put the opposite of Numbers chapter six. He put that curse on himself as he went to the cross. Galatians chapter three, cursed is the man who hangs on a tree. On the cross, Jesus was cursed. He wore thorns. It was the opposite of God's blessing. Jesus, though perfect and pure, would take the thorns, he would take the curse and place it upon his head and he hung on that tree. The opposite of Numbers chapter six. May the Lord curse you. May the Lord abandon you. May the Lord keep you in darkness and give you only judgment with out ever receiving grace. That is what Jesus put on his head as he wore the crown of thorns. He wore the curse in our place. The final word before we begin to tie this all together is the word Passover. See the word Passover in verse 14, that all these events are happening on the day of preparation for the Passover. There's a little bit of debate about what day of the week this is in reference to, but but that's really a secondary debate. The main point from John is that this detail is that Jesus, that this detail is showing us is that Jesus is now being prepared. This is the day of preparation for the Passover lamb, that Jesus is being prepared. You gotta remember what happened during the actual Passover, the first Passover. This was back in the book of Exodus, that on the night 
For the Jewish people were going to be set free from Egypt, that God was going to move through the nation and he would strike down all of the firstborns. God was bringing judgment. God was going to judge the guilt. And yet God, because he is gracious and kind, provided a way for God to pass over some of the households. So God's people were to take a lamb, they were to sacrifice it, and they were to paint the blood of this lamb on top of the doorpost. And as God would move through the nation, God would see the blood of the lamb, and he would pass over. He wouldn't see the guilt, but he would pass over it in grace. See, the life of a lamb was given as a substitute. The blood of the lamb for the life of God's people. Blood was the means by which God would pass over guilt. So in the following years, in the life of Israel, the Passover holiday became a real high point in the calendar. It became such a big deal that there is now a day of preparation to get the lamb ready to be sacrificed the next day, to prepare the lambs as adequate substitutes. Lambs that are going to be slain so that others might go free. Blood was shed so that others might live. A debt incurred by the debt of the people, but it would not be the people, but it would be the lambs that would suffer instead. And this is one of those details, just make no mistake. That when you read this, some would think, well, you know, that's an interesting coincidence that it just so happens that Jesus is dying on the day of preparation for Passover. No, this is all very intentional. God set it up this way. John is writing for you to see it. Here, Jesus, as he is being flogged, Jesus, as he is wearing a crown of thorns, all of this is Jesus being prepared to be offered up as the final Passover lamb, as the final sacrifice, as the final bloody substitute so that God might pass over his people with finality, with completion, so that you could be forever forgiven, no longer guilty. It's all very intentional. Let's piece this all together. Flogged, thorns, Passover. Like I said, this is the first Sunday in Lent. What happens often in many branches of the church is that we make Lent a time to make personal sacrifices as a way of atoning for our guilt. We feel very guilty about ourselves and what we have done, and so we want to make a sacrifice to honor God during Lent. I heard even this past week in the, uh, the locker room when I was working out, an older gentleman said, you know, I've, I've made a lot of mistakes, and so I'm going to use this Lent season to get things right. I'm going to give up drinking beer. Not the greatest sacrifice, probably could do a little bit more, but behind it is the heart of all of us, that we want to prove something to God. We want to atone for our sins. We want to make our lives a little bit harder to show God that we are really penitent. It's a way of making personal sacrifices as a way of atoning for our guilt, of us wanting to bear some of the costs, of us showing to God that we can suffer like Jesus. But even though we try during Lent to suffer for our sins, the strange thing is that guilt still persists. Will we ever fast enough 
Will we ever sacrifice enough? Will we ever care for the poor enough? Will we ever improve ourselves morally enough? Have we ever really been enough like Jesus? And the answer to all those types of questions is always going to be a resounding no. You cannot atone for your own sins. See, secular people, they just try to remove guilt by just pretending that there is no God, no God, no guilt. That's foolish. Guilt still persists. Religious people, on the other hand, try and remove guilt through their religious efforts, which is equally foolish. Because even in the most religious, pious person, look at Martin Luther, guilt still persists. So concerning the guilt for both the secular and the religious, the answer for both is the same. The answer is verse 5, which is actually the title for this sermon. Look at verse 5 with me. Now, now Pilate is saying, verse 5, he's mocking, he's not genuine, but his words are absolutely true. They are more true than he realizes concerning our guilt, the guilt that every single person, male, female, young, old, rich, poor, the guilt that every single person has. What do we do with our guilt? Behold the man. This man, Jesus, Jesus, who is word of God in the flesh, come to us. Jesus, who is the great I am, behold, look to him, trust in him, turn away from yourself and be found in him by faith. If you are secular, do not live under the fantasy that there is no such thing as guilt, because you know deep inside your heart, you know that Putin is guilty. That there is a standard and that people are breaking it. And if you are being honest, you have to admit that you are more like Putin than you are like Jesus Christ. You know that you are a guilty person. Do not wish it away. And to the religious person who knows that guilt exists because God exists, do not attempt to self-atone for your sin because you know it will never be enough. So whether you are secular or whether you are religious, Behold the man, Jesus. Behold the man who was flogged, whipped, crowned with thorns, who was the final Passover lamb. Behold Jesus. Jesus who was whipped, Jesus who was flogged. Behold the stripes on his back. Behold his stripes of blood. Stripes that were given to show us that we might be healed. Behold Jesus. Jesus who wore a crown of thorns, Jesus who wore our pain, who wore our sin, who wore our shame and suffering, Jesus who took the entire curse upon himself, Jesus who was cursed so that we might be blessed. Behold him, Jesus. Behold Jesus, the final Passover lamb. As the judgment of God moved through the nation, any household that was covered by the blood of the Passover lamb was graciously spared from the judgment. Innocent lambs were given so that the guilty might go free. 
Make no mistake, Israel did not earn this gracious act. Israel did not give up enough meat. Israel did not give up enough chocolate. Israel did not give up enough alcohol. Israel did not attend enough mass services. Israel did none of that. The only, and I mean the absolute only reason that Israel was saved from the judgment of God was because the blood of the Passover lamb was enough. So behold this man, behold Jesus, the final Passover lamb. He is guilt-bearing, curse-wearing, sacrificially atoning for us. Behold this man. This man is the only hope for the secular. He is the only hope for the religious. He is the only hope for those that are guilty. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we give you thanks for your son, Jesus Christ, for all that he did in his life that we have seen in the first 18 chapters of John, and now as we come to chapter 19, for all that he did in his death. Father, we thank you that the gospel is not about us wishing away our guilt, that the gospel is not about us atoning for our guilt, that the gospel is about your son, doing all the work on our behalf. Help the gospel to be fresh, renewed. Help us to be excited about it. And I do pray for any that do not understand the grace of Jesus Christ. Oh Lord, soften their hearts. Help them to see that there is a better way, that they might turn from themselves and trust in your son, Jesus. We pray this all in his name. Amen.